Let's open with a chant and then we'll dive right in. Om Namah Shivaya Satatam Panchakritya Vidhayane Chidananda Ghanna Swatma Paramartava Bhasine Om Namah Shivaya Salutations to that pure consciousness who in each and every moment is performing the five divine acts of creating a world, maintaining a world, dissolving a world, as, as well as revealing and concealing himself to himself and from himself, from within that same world. Salutations to Lord Shiva, who in his dance reveals unto me my true nature. Shiva, consciousness replete with bliss. Om Naomi Chitpratibham Devim Param Bhairava Yoginim Matar Mana Prameyamsha Shulam Bhujaskritaspadam Oh, my praise that goddess who is Pratibha, the pure intuition of knowing awareness in its own true nature. That supreme goddess Pratibha, who is non-different from her consort Bhairava, Bhairava Yoginim, who is inseparable from Bhairava, pure awareness. I praise that goddess who appears as the knower, knowing and known, who has make it, who has made for her permanent resident, residence this lotus heart mounted atop the trident, whose three spokes are the trinity of knower, knowing, known. Naomi Devim Shari Rastam Nityato Bhairavakritehe Pravarin Meghagana Vyoma Vidhuleka Vilasinim. I salute that Vilasini, that ever playful one, that coquette. I praise that goddess who abides, Sharirastam, in the body of the dancer whose form is Bhairava. Praise that goddess who is the body of the dancing Bhairava, who is beautiful and playful like a streak of lightning against the cloudy sky in the rainy season. Om, may this be an offering to her. Om, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Jai Ma. So dear friends, tonight we've got such an interesting night ahead of us because we're going to ask a question. How do I make a living? What should I do with my life? Like, how do I, how do I bring in the abundance that I need to support myself and my family, kind of like that story we heard of Swami Vivekananda and his financial hard times. How do I bring in the abundance that I need to support myself and my family, etc., um, while still being fully aligned with spiritual values? In other words, how can I make a living without making myself into the living dead? <laughs> that was a cute way to phrase today's question because it seems like for so many of us, what it means to like make a living is in some sense, a sacrifice of values, of dignity, of spiritual virtues in order to do something that we might at best like, but most probably tolerate, right? So many of us are doing the kind of work that we would rather not be doing, but feel like it would be practical to do. So I'm here to kind of maybe rattle the cage a little bit and spit in the face of practicality and suggest from a tantric point of view, using the um, teachings of Abhinava Gupta in the Sri Tantra Loka, that there is a way to understand awareness that makes for a very good answer to this question. How do I make a living without making myself into the living dead? So that's what the lecture is about. I, I, I think I'm going to call it something like tantric, tantric career advice. <laughs> tantric career advice. And it's incredibly cool because it's a pretty rich 
and sophisticated discussion that we get from the tantric tradition, especially in Sri Tantra Loka, about the ultimate nature of awareness. It's a kind of discourse about awareness that, dare I say, goes a little further um, in its descriptive power than, like, say, Sankhya or, say, the monistic Vedantic tradition, Advaita Vedanta. Because there, at most, at most, you can only say it's Sat Chit Ananda. That's the ultimate nature of reality. Pure non-dual consciousness is, at most, existence in and of itself, bliss in and of itself, and knowing or consciousness in and of itself. That's That's the most you can say. Now, the Buddhistic traditions, in its classical form, wouldn't even go so far right? They're notoriously silent on the issue. Not that they deny that there is an ultimate reality, far from that, as Nagarjuna carefully points out in his particularly tantric Mula Madhyamika Karaka, he says there, look, the Buddha taught two truths. He did teach an absolute truth. So there is an absolute principle in Buddhism, which of course gets named very substantively in like later tantric Vajrayana traditions, like the clear light of the void or what have you. But in classical Buddhism, you can't even say that. You can't say anything about the absolute principles. Mom's the word, right? So notice, in the traditions around consciousness, there's very little discourse about the absolute principle. Whether it's the um, Kevala Advaita of Shankara, Nirguna Nirvishesha Brahman, or the absolute Anatman principle of, of Buddhism, or the Shunyam, or whatever what, what you might like to call it, very little is said about awareness. And the argument here is that very little can be said about that which is itself not an object. Adrisham, Avevaharam, Alakshanam. You're all familiar with the Mandukya Upanishad verse 7, defining exactly why I can't speak about this thing. Because it's not a thing, nor is it nothing. It's a no thing. So obviously, it's very resistant to labeling, naming, language, etc. Right? However, even considering that the traditions of Tantra, especially in the hands of Abhinava Gupta, um, manages to rise to the occasion and say something about that unspeakable one, right? Without compromising its unspeakable, absolute, transcendent, imminent nature, without compromising its subjective, pure existence, without doing any of that, still we're able to say something. So today, I'd like to say a few things about consciousness um, from the lens of Abhinavagupta. And the things that we're going to say about consciousness, I believe, offer very profound insights as to how we can live our life in a way that's abundant um, and fruitful. Really, Abhinavagupta, I think, in glossing consciousness, in describing consciousness, in explaining his, you know, experience firsthand with consciousness, the ground of all experiencing, I think he provides us with a key, a powerful key for understanding how to make a living um, without making ourselves into the living dead. So that's what I want to talk about. So I'm so excited. I can't wait. That's the main part of the lecture. But I think we'll start first by having a discussion about bliss. Uh, and joy and meaning. What is it to be blissful? And not just in peak experiences, but all the time, even during grief, even during pain. What is it to experience that which is called ananda, meaning, profundity, etc.? We'll have to talk about that first. So we'll start there. Then we'll enter into this discussion about how to live my life and make a, make a living using the language that we use in the first part of the lecture. And in the third part of the lecture, if there's time, mother willing, I want to put before you an idea that I think is quite provocative maybe even a little dangerous for the bhaktas in the room. Because there is a theology offered by Kashmiri Shaivism that's a little bit provocative because it challenges the notions of an omniscient God who is always in control. Um, this is perhaps one of the subtlest ideas, a God who is constantly surprised by his own infinite manifestation. Okay, and, and that, I think, challenges a little bit some of the ideas that I'm going to provide in the first two half 
first two parts of the lecture. So I'm going to say a bunch of stuff. And then at the end of the lecture, I'm going to say um, something that might challenge the first two parts of the lecture, and then maybe offer an even more nuanced, thrillingly radical um, understanding of how one should make a living. Right. In other words, I'm going to say that even if the arguments in part one and two of this lecture fail completely, and you do indeed end up under the 101 or any similar bridge, um, scarfing out a living on the verge of death, even then, if you are to meet with absolute demise on your quest of living in accordance with your own value, even then, it's still blissful and worthwhile. Okay, and, 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 and it's going to be kind of challenging and provocative, so I'm very excited for that part of the lecture, if we can get to it. But so that we can get to it, let me just start. <laughs> okay, so as you know, in Tantra, especially in its non-dual or kaula variant, meaning in its more left-hand sort of path, so not left-hand in the sense that's, you know, transgressive for the sake of being transgressive, but left-hand in the sense of kaula, kaula or krama. Of course, those of you in the room who know what these words mean, of course, yes, they're technical phrases that refer to certain schools of Tantra. So in this orientation of Tantra, the Kaula approach, it's enough to hear the teaching only once. What is the teaching? It's called the view. It's the ultimate nature of reality. And it's offered in two ways. One, it's offered as Sankramanam which means in the Krama tradition, direct transmission. So Sankramanam is when no words are offered, simply through a glance or through a touch or I don't know, through some writing on the tongue or whatever, through some mystical means. It doesn't even have to be like exaggerated. It could be as simple as a glance. That alone is enough to convey unto another the full intuitive understanding of the ultimate nature of reality. This is one way to convey it. It's called Sankramanam. And in the contact of a, of a really awakened master, just like one lamp, can light another, one awakened master can awaken anybody else whose inherent nature is awakeness. You know, so Sankramanam is exactly equivalent to like Shakti Pata. So typically, when you get this Sankramanam, this direct transmission, it can be what is otherwise in this tradition called Shakti Pata, sudden descent of power. Or not all, all the time is it necessarily Shakti Pata. It could also be another technical phrase, Sam Avesha, sudden influx of divine power. So either Shaktipata or Samavesha, but at least in this period of Tantra, Sankramanam just means wordless, direct transmission through a glance or touch or some other means. Hmm? Sankramanam. Now there's another type of Sankramanam. It's a distinct sort of transmission. It's called Katanam, to say, to teach verbally. And so a guru might offer um, some kind of linguistic piece maybe some kind of teaching, maybe in a song, like we heard from Prithyaka, or maybe in terms of some kind of upadesha, some kind of teaching. And when that teaching comes, there's a possibility that you will suddenly intuit the meaning behind that teaching. So it's not the teaching itself, rather it's the reality to which that teaching points. That is the point of all of this. So once you get a teaching, apparently there's a possibility in all of us to intuit the meaning of that teaching, which is far beyond the words. The, the verbal or, or, or I guess you could say dialectical component, okay? So then what will, what will this feel like? It will feel like a sudden flash of intuitive realization. The word here in Sanskrit, a technical phrase in this tradition is pratibha, a word that is going to be very important for us in today's lecture. I recognize that I'm moving at a million words per second here, but that's because I have so much to cover and I'm so enthused. And for those people in YouTube on the YouTube comments who are like, please just freaking slow down. I have no idea what you're saying. You're absolute man. I'm sorry. Okay. Let me just apologize. You have to like, if you have to slow down the video, slow down the video, but I've got a place to go and either you're coming with me or you aren't. So let's go. <laughs> so, um, 
Katanam, it's not that you have to understand necessarily the linguistic data or the meaning of the words. But sometimes just hearing it and holding in your mind that thought construct can suddenly spontaneously open you up to Shaktipata or Samavesha or Sankramanam. So what we just discussed, that direct transmission of energy, that influx can come through holding in your mind a particular model of reality, not that the model of reality maps onto reality in a one-to-one -one way. However, the model of reality presented by a teacher can be so sensitive, so subtle, and so close to the way things actually are that it can serve as a means. Okay, in some ways, it's also an ends. Because the thing about awareness is it likes to present itself to itself. So there's some sense in which this teaching is not a ladder. Okay, it's not to be used like some tool to get to some place. It's itself the occasion. It's like if you got a ladder, not to climb up to your roof, but just to play on it. Like that. So there's another reason why we offer uh, katanam, just because it's fun, just because it's what awareness does. Uh, just like a flower that blooms with fragrance, so to awakeness, bodha, when it's awake, just blooms or, or it fluoresces with words. That's why a lot of these texts are called manjari, svabhodhodaya manjari, which means the efflorescence of the awakened joyful consciousness, something like that. Okay, so that's katanam. And of course, the third one is pujanam, which is through actual ritual techniques like diksha, initiation or whatever. So these three, okay, sankramanam, katanam, pujanam. These are the three means through which krama passes on a teaching throughout the lineage. Now, this is important. From whom comes the shaktipat? Never from the person. This is a very important understanding. God alone is the guru. Just in the Kaula Sutra, there are a beautiful set of verses that says, you know, you know what Guru is? Guru is the awakened consciousness that is transmitted in an unbroken way throughout the lineage. So Guru is actually Guru Shakti, not the person. The person inadvertently might be playing the Guru function, which is to channel that Guru Shakti. But you know what? That person is not even needed. It can come through like a bird or a book or whatever. This, this Guru Shakti actually can come through anything. Um, because it's coming from awareness itself. In other words, it's coming from Shiva. So only Shiva teaches. So Shiva, in order to give a transmission, Shiva being here, non-dual consciousness, can give it in these three ways. Today, we're going to choose Katanam. In other words, we're going to present some models. Okay. Now we've been doing this, right? And we're going to continue doing this. Um, but there are many different models. Each of them are saying the same thing in different ways. There's, for instance, the model of the six layers of the self. There's the model of the 36 tatwas. You know, there's the model of the four levels of the word. There are all these different models offered by this tradition. Each of them are just various ways of looking at one thing, which itself cannot be looked at for it is the looker. Sorry to be mystical. But now we're going to take one, just going to choose one model. And that's going to be the six layers of the self. Why are we choosing this model? Well, because we've been talking about it for the last three or four classes. So many of you are quite familiar now with this model. Now, any one model is sufficient for full bloom enlightenment. So you don't need to collect models and fill the mind with different ideas unless you want to. And that's fun too. But any one model is enough. And the way to do katanam is you have to like really hold the model. You have to like, the way you should work with it is like savoring tea, fi a fine tea, you know, like, Oh, you know, like some kind of like savoring wine or something like you can't just like gulp it. You're like, oh, 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 good wine, mate. You can't. No, you got to like really just take your time with it. You have to say something about the glacial frost in Argentina or the tannins or, you know, you have to really take your time. And in other words, and this is kind of profound. You have to do an embodied sort of learning. 
In other words, and Prithi would like this, you can't just hear a teaching and know it in your mind. In other, you have to actually sit with the vibration of that teaching. And you have to meditate on just that feeling as if the thought was a sensation. And each thought is a sensation. You notice each thought is like sensation. It's like some thoughts are spiky and hard. Others are soft and smooth. Every thought has a certain energetic quality, right? So this teaching is a high shakti, high powered what is called a vikalpa, suddha vikalpa. It's got a lot of power. And the idea is just to hold it, be with it, breathe with it, meditate on it, feel the words, not as linguistic things, but, but as power, corpuscles of power. Swaha swadha namostute. Jayanti mangala kali bhadra kali kapalni. This durgaksha shivadatri swaha swadha namostute. Mother, thou art the power of all mantras. So the power of this vikalpa is mother. Okay, so the way to access mother is just by sitting with it. So that therefore, uh, we've been talking about one Siddha Vikalpa for the last like, I don't know, three or four classes. I hope you're not bored because in each class, we're deriving a new understanding from it. Today, we're going to derive an understanding that will allow us to make a living without becoming living dead. Okay, so let's look at it again. I'm going to put on the screen now um, the picture, which we haven't yet done. I think it might be valuable to have on the screen a picture, actually, a picture of this model. This, they're, they're, can, can you see it, by the way? Okay, on the left is some modern artwork by Anutara Trikala. No, no, this is by Arjuna Vallabha. So I found this on the internet, on Tumblr. <laughs> Arjuna Vallabha's Trika Goddesses. And by the way, in the opening, we just chanted the verse for Para Devi. Naumi Chit Pratibham Devim Param Bhairava Yoginim. Right? Oh, and we also chanted the Apara one. But anyway, just moving on. So I got excited there. So here it is. This model is what we're going to use today, okay? It's the cover of the, the, the YouTube video where we first discussed it. Um, and those of you who are, you know, familiar with Vedanta and, and obviously the Taittiriya Upanishad will see that there's some kind of, it's reminiscent. It's like the five koshas, pancha kosha of the Taittiriya Upanishad, but it's not that. It's different. It's different for a variety of reasons. And I don't really want to explore those reasons because we already did. I think in the class called I Am Everyone and I Own Everything. I think that was the name of that class. So in that class, we introduced this model and we really exhaustively discussed why prana must be subtler than chitta and, and what happens if you get stuck in shunya, stuck as, as a transcendentalist. Like we had that whole very juicy discussion. So I'd point you to that lecture. Today though, I want to zero in on something else. Now, this is very important. Each of us is going to identify mostly with one or more of these layers. And obviously not all the time are you going to be on one layer. It's more fluid than that. But predominantly you're going to find yourself in one layer more than others. Okay? Yeah. So predominantly, some are going to be on the Vastu layer. I'll explain what that is in a bit. Some on the Prana layer, some in the Shunya layer, right? Escapist, transcendentalist will be there all the time, deep meditation or whatever. Some will be in the Deha. Many will be in the Chitta. A lot of us are on the Chitta level, if not the Deha level. So most of us are going to be confined predominantly to one or more of these layers. And what does that mean for us? Okay, so the ultimate nature of reality is as such. Only one exists, pure consciousness, Shiva. And that Shiva is manifested as everyone and everything for the sake of his own divine play. So moved by this urge for self-expression, he becomes every agent of knowing and doing. And as such enjoys this universe through manifesting various subjects, objects, and the relationships between the two. You are that Shiva. 
You are pure consciousness. Your true nature is beyond mind, beyond body, beyond personality. You are the transpersonal Shiva that includes everything and is everything. So in the ultimate understanding, you are everybody and you are everything. As Rumi so beautifully said, I wander the world to meet my thousand faces. So every set of eyes that not only do you see in the Zoom room, some 50 of you, but also anywhere in the world, every pair of eyes is a different lens through which you, Shiva, are experiencing yourself or which through which you, Shiva, are presenting yourself to yourself. So all objects moving and unmoving, animate and inanimate, they're none other than you who are at your essence nature, always pure consciousness. You always were, always will be timelessly, eternally pure consciousness. That's the ultimate view. Now, why do we suffer? In other words, I'm going to ask, why does our work suck from time to time? Like, why is work such a drag? This is the, this is the way I want to answer this question. Okay, follow closely. It's very, very subtle. Anytime you act out of alignment with the ultimate nature of, thing, of things, anytime you act not from a place of understanding the true nature or the way it is, you're going to suffer. To the degree that you've departed from ultimate reality, to that degree you suffer. Because you'll recall that we did a lecture called, Is God Evil? Do you remember where we did some theodicy and we asked the question, how could an omnibenevolent and omnipotent God permit so much evil in the world? Anyway, in that lecture, we took, took it up from a tantric point of view. And there we said, you know what suffering is? Suffering is a blessing. Why is it a blessing? Why is suffering Shiva? Because it's the feedback, feedback mechanism of reality to show you that you are not in line with reality. The degree, the acuteness of your suffering is always a blessing because it shows you acutely that you're thinking, feeling, and acting from a place that's not mapped on to who you really are and what this really is. So needless to say, the closer you come to thinking, feeling, and acting from a place of who you really are and what this really is, to that degree, you will feel joy, bliss. I don't even want to say like happiness. It doesn't have to be that, but deep meaning, poetry, profundity. Okay, so notice this scale, friends, is what we're going to use for the rest of this very important scale. The more deviated I am, the more misaligned I am from a true understanding of who I am and what this is, the more I suffer. Okay, so that means if you're working a job that causes you suffering, not just challenging you in a way that's healthy and appropriate, but actually sounds like a drag, like it, it's horrible. It's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to go in the into the workplace. It's hard to face your colleagues. You get home from the day and you're absolutely drained and you're unable to do anything else. You can't even talk to your friends or spouse or you can't even do your practices because meditation, it's out the window when you come home after your day. If, if this is your experience, it's because your work and your understanding is deeply misaligned. So this is, a, this is an important metric, okay? If you've somehow or rather forgotten or occluded your true nature and the true nature of the world, you suffer. And that suffering is a great thing. It's a blessing. It's the way that Lord Shiva helps himself remember. And the more you suffer, actually the better, because that means the quicker you can come back to truth. <laughs> it's like, you know the frog in lukewarm water? It's like if you put a frog, frog in boiling water, it immediately jumps out. But if you put a frog in lukewarm water and you slowly turn up the heat, that frog is cooked before it even knows it. So those of us who are experiencing low-grade suffering, we might not even know the shoe doesn't fit until well into our life, okay? And then it comes as quite a shock when we discover some foot problem. <laughs> so it's better to have a horribly unfitting shoe than a shoe that just sort of fits, but not really. <laughs> it's better to touch hot water than it is to just sit in this lukewarm water and slowly boil, slowly die. Many of us are slowly dying. and We don't even know it's happening. 
look at this beautiful um poem hey pretty share it with the whole it's a direct message to me la pratyaka you should share it with the whole community the the walt whitman poems very beautiful okay and whitman you know so vedantic but i would say more in the tantra sense okay anyway this is important if i experience acute suffering that's really good it's i should be really grateful for that because that means i'm acutely misaligned something has gone so wrong in my understanding of myself and the world and if i'm experiencing low grade suffering i might either not be very sensitive to my own despair i might just not be think i'm too busy to actually reflect about the true subjective nature of my experience <laughs> or um it's worse because i might only be slightly misaligned and therefore not experiencing the greatest joy that i could be experiencing the greatest so i think it's better to be really horrifically misaligned you know because that i think brings you back into alignment faster and more surely than like just being a little bit off but even those who are a little bit off should take note because your life should always be in a flow always be full of joy and meaning uh, and and by meaning i mean something deeper than just superficial happiness which we'll see in a bit okay so i'll start with that this is a scale a metric that we're going to use for much of this discussion the more misaligned i am the more i suffer the closer in alignment i am to the truth of my being in the universe the better uh, my life will be or the more joy i'll experience okay so let's look at this diagram one more time vastu means my possessions so you know this is basically a description of i am statements i could say i am vastu i am my stuff i am defined by what i own i am aggrandized by increasing the content of my physical property and i am diminished when that content is somewhat dwindling so if i have more money and i feel more myself then i know that i am identifying with my stuff with my wealth with my possessions if i have less money and i feel less myself if i feel diminished by that then i know i'm stuck on this level of vastu now as you know as we said in last week's lecture things come and go so quickly and the ability of things to satisfy me is very very limited so even if i make 10000 which might have been something for me yesterday um today it won't be that much to me because tomorrow i'm going to be striving for like you know 100000 so every type of possession will just create the new normal and intensify the craving for better and better things and horrifically things themselves are snatched away from me by the power of time that all devouring time okay so in so far as as i am identifying with my stuff my possessions i am that much far uh, th- that far away from my true nature as chit so in case you haven't realized chit is your true nature your true being vastu is the furthest thing from it so the furthest thing from my true essence is to think that i am my stuff so if i make the statement i am my stuff i will suffer and i will suffer the most because it's the most misaligned so this is why the christ was very careful to say love of money is evil he didn't say money was evil it's very important In fact Christ was very abundance positive. You know he would say to people in financial anxiety, you know what he would say to them? He would point to birds and say something like, look at these birds. They don't bust their back working a job they hate. They just fly about, you know, they just do their thing. They don't think about tomorrow. They don't store their grain in a storehouse and worry about it because of the impending financial disaster. No. They they're kind of free of that anxiety. Nor do they sow nor do they reap. In other words, they don't really work. Birds just are. Christ is saying they just fly around and and do what they feel like doing and notice the lord looks after them are ye not better than sparrows so you know essentially the christ he's saying that if you just become aligned with reality the same force of nature that looks after the birds will look after you don't you know the lord understands what's in your heart and therefore he knows what to give you that was on the sermon of the mouth and then you know about clothes he would point to 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 lavender no sorry lilies 
And this is all in the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. He said, look, King Solomon, by the way, is like his great-great-grandfather. He's saying about his own ancestor. Look, even King Solomon, <laughs> my ancestor, a great king, even King Solomon was not clad in raiment finer than this here lavender. See, nature knows beauty and it knows that you love beauty. So it knows to provide you with beauty. So notice Christ was very abundance positive. To him, simplicity and returning to the true nature of things was the epitome of being taken care of. The world takes care of those who are aligned with it, who are harmoniously flowing with the forces of, of creation. So the Christ was abundance positive, but he said that love of money is a great evil. And you would say it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man. Essentially, what he's saying is that not like if you have wealth, you're therefore automatically barred from spiritual realization. He's saying that if you identify as a rich man, so you could have a lot of wealth and have what the Christians call poverty of spirit, meaning inside, you don't feel like any of this wealth is mine. I'm just holding it. It's, it's like a loan or something. And uh, as, as Swami Vivekananda says, it's like you're a bellboy just shuttling an object from one person to another, never forgetting at any point that this is not your object, although it's in your keeping. So similarly, you could have wealth and not consider yourself rich because money does not make one rich. It reminds me of a Bob Marley uh, interview, as, as conflicted as the character might have been. You might have seen it right, on YouTube where the interviewer says, are you rich? And he says, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean rich? And, and Bob Marley, and, and the interviewer says, do you have a lot of possessions? And Bob Marley, I think he like strokes his mustache and he goes, possessions make one rich? Right? Very deep understanding that his wealth was not in the things that corrupt, right? Lay not up thy treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. So don't say I am rich if by rich you mean your stuff. So the Christ, although he was abundance positive, was very uh, careful to point out the error in claiming to be rich or in being attached to money or being attached to stuff. Because all stuff, like the Buddha would teach thousands of years before, corrodes, right? All things come and go. Everything is impermanent. So let's go back to this diagram. If you think you are rich because of your bank account, or if you think that you are more of a person because you have more things, or if you think you are your car or you are your house, that's the worst kind of suffering you can have. And if you want to see how bad that suffering is, um, and of course, suffering is very subjective after all, but I invite you to uh, Brentwood, California. Just come to Los Angeles and I'll point it out to you. I, I, I teach middle school and I teach some private schools. So at that private school, I sometimes have the opportunity to go to certain houses. Even private tutoring and stuff like that. No, go to certain houses and I'll see that the, the degree of suffering, manifest suffering. You know, the marriages are falling apart and everyone's screaming and the children hate the parents, the parents hate the children. It's like, it's awful. And notice a lot of that comes from defining oneself uh, based on one's property, based on one's car, based on one's position. So, okay, that's the first thing. If I say I am rich, and by that I mean my material wealth, I'm going to suffer the most according to this understanding of reality. So therefore, doing any kind of work for money is a terrible idea. That's the first understanding. Doing any kind of work to increase your wealth for wealth's sake is a unique and exquisite way to suffer, right? Because you'll get the money, but you'll lose everything else. You'll lose peace of mind. You will lose your health, ruin your health in trying to get the money. Um, and then what money you got will have to be spent on healthcare bills. And even if you accumulate a lot of toys, you might not have the time or peace of mind to enjoy them, as we said in previous lectures. So I won't, I won't beat a dead horse more. <laughs> it's enough to say that it's very, very bad idea, according to Tantra, not only to define yourself by what you own, but to act out of that definition. So if you think you are your wealth, that's going to inform 
what you do and why you do it. And that means you're going to choose careers that increase your possessions and increase your wealth. Notice this won't work. This won't work. Why? Because you aren't your vastu. You aren't your stuff. And because you aren't your stuff, living as if you are will always be misaligned from the way things really are, which will always cause suffering. So you should never work for money. And you might say, yeah, I need it. Wait, don't worry. We'll talk about how it will come in a natural and abundant way. Okay. So never do anything for money. That's the first understanding here. Okay. To act for money, to try to increase your wealth for whatever reason indicates that on some level, at least you think that you are your possessions or defined by your bank account on some level. Right. Okay. And by the way, having enough is a very elastic term. A lot of people say, I need to have enough, but by enough, you're including like four $20 alcoholic beverages at your local bar. By enough, you're including your Netflix subscription, which you need to have because you're so tired after work to do anything but watch TV, right? By enough, you mean that you have to feed all of your appetites, which are only there because of the uninspiring nature of your life. Okay, so you don't need all of these things. You only think you do because you work a job that depletes you so much that it turns you into a mindless zombie consumer in this consumerist economy. Enough with that. I don't buy your, I need to be practical and I need to have enough and I need to save. Fuck that noise, okay? I don't buy it. I can't take it seriously. I don't believe you <laughs> because I don't believe that your needs are really needs. I think that you've cleverly disguised your wants as needs, right? <laughs> okay, so that's the first thing. Don't do anything for stuff. Don't do anything for money. You'll only suffer. Okay. Now, let's look at the next layer. So then, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Mic drop. Feedback sounds. Okay, the next, the next, you can tell I'm having fun. The next thing that we have to discuss is deha. So, okay, I'm not my stuff. Fine, I have stuff. I, I am not stuff. It's mine, not me. Sure. Okay, next one. And by the way, me and mine is frightfully close. Because mine is typically an expression of me. So to say this is mine, I know it's not me, but it's mine. It's another way of saying it's me, right? Okay, so be, be aware of that. However, if I say, okay, I am this body, this body is mine. So I'm not my stuff. Stuff comes and goes. I'm not interested in, in money necessarily. I'm interested in being a body because I think I am. And therefore, I'm interested in the things that money can buy for the sake of the body. Notice how this is a nuance. It's different from the first thing we said. The first thing is all about having more stuff for its own sake. Now I might want money and stuff, not for its own sake, because I don't, I no longer think that I am my stuff, but because I think I am my body. Now I want money and now I want stuff for the things that the body can enjoy, sensual pleasure. So if I think I am my body, then my primary motive force will be to increase the net amount of sensual or bodily pleasure that I can enjoy. So I want to go on more vacations to, you know, see new things, hear new things, smell new things. I, I accumulate experiences because I'm looking to gratify my senses. Or not only that, I need money now because I'm so identified with the body that I'm afraid of old age, sickness, and death. So I'm shoring up for you know those things. Ironically, in order to like have money for the doctor, you tend to work jobs that are more likely to take you to the doctor. <laughs> That's the irony of things. In order to afford health insurance. And by the way, at the end of all this, I'm going to advocate for having health insurance and for being what is called financially practical, but from a much deeper place than this one. Because if I say, okay, the reason I should work is because I'm afraid of old age. What will happen when I'm old and there's no one to take care of me? I better have money so I can hire like some hot like Scandinavian nurse Okay, so that they will look after me when I'm old. Okay, if I'm thinking that I'm afraid of old age or if I'm afraid of sickness, I might think, oh man, I need to all these medicines. And I went to a person's house one day. It was so funny. Um, 
I have to, I can't resist. And they were like for one hour or something, long time. I don't know. I'm probably exaggerating, but they were talking about anti-consumerism. They were so against the consumer economy. They were just so like, you know, in the name of spirituality. Then I went into their kitchen to, you know, do a good deed, wash some dishes. And I noticed there was a cabinet and it was open and it was all like vitamins, like all these supplements and vitamins. These things aren't cheap. Each like vitamin thing is like, can be hundreds of dollars sometimes. It's like, whoa, these people, their financial demand is so high because these perfectly healthy uh, 30-something adults feel that they need to take all of these supplements and all of these vitamins and they're kind of like health crazy in that sense because they think they are their body and they think spirituality is about the body. And, and, and truly, because if they become unhealthy, they think that somehow it's because they're not spiritual enough or they're afraid of medicine and vaccine as if God can't come in like medicines. Right. So notice, if you think you are the body, you'll have a weird fixation with health, a weird fascination with the body, a fear of old age and definitely a fear of death, which might cause you to seek building legacy. So maybe now it's not about stuff, but it's about legacy. It's about uh, health and it's about um, shoring up for old age. It's about retirement. Right. So I think retirement, the, the desire to make sure that you have retirement money. Oh, man, I hope I pray to mother that I can work a job where I never feel like I want to retire. I pray that retirement will be forced upon me by death and not because I'm tired and want to like, I don't know, sip margaritas on the beach. How sad to work a job that you can't wait to finish with, right? So sad. That doesn't sound like inspired work to me. That sounds like a prison sentence. <laughs> anyway, so if you identify with the body, then you're thinking in terms of old age, sickness and death. So then you're going to want um, like retirement. You're going to want, okay, all these things. So it's quite, quite clear. Most of us, I think, are, are doing work operating from these levels of understanding. If I think I am myself, if I think I myself am my bus to my stuff, this is how I'll behave. If I think I myself am my body, then this is how I'll behave, right? Okay. And of course, needless to say, that causes suffering. So this is why the work is a drag. Okay, third thing. So I hope it's clear thus far. If I work a job for any of these two things that I just described, that work will feel like a drag because it's not in keeping with my true nature. My motive was wrong. Why was my motive wrong? This is worth repeating. My motive for doing the work was wrong because my understanding of myself was wrong. Notice how in each of these, it's about self-understanding, about who you think you are. And that is at the root of what you do and why you do it. Okay. So next thing, chitta. So the body is yeah, immortality projects, right? That, that's what most of us, I think, are, are busy doing. I would even argue that like Putin is on an immortality project right now to restore the greatness of what was a previous historic empire. You know, I think he feels like before he dies, he better like get his name enshrined in history as the great rebuilder. You know, you can have sympathy sometimes for people in the world because you see they're just acting out the same delusions that we ourselves act out of when we do work for the sake of body, for legacy, right? So we shouldn't be so hard on people because they're just acting out on a larger scale what we ourselves are doing <laughs> on a smaller scale because of delusion. No one is bad. They're just misaligned, right? Okay, next thing, next thing. Um, chitta. So chitta, unlike the body, is subtler. It's subtler than the body. And it has to do with your mental sense of self. I think egoity could, could fit in this category. Like your conglomeration of thoughts that you call your personhood. So this is where um, 
ma and pa's voice is like i need to make my mother proud and my father proud if i if i don't do this job then you know my parents are going to be disappointed in me so this is that nagging voice and again we have to go back to jesus because i think jesus like any enlightened master like any avatara is really living the dharma in the truest sense of that word they're always in flow they're doing their passion project as a living right so he actually has a lot of good advice and he says whoever follows father and mother more than me is not fit to follow me and this is where i'm speaking to you people in india because a lot of you feel like it's more important to defer to your parents than it is to do what it is in your heart to do your parents or your guardian wants your happiness they just don't know what that happiness looks like your parents want you to be financially satisfied because perhaps their projection of you is as your stuff or as your body or as your mind right they might not know your true nature and interestingly the thing that you are here in this universe to do has not yet been done yet because if it was why would you be here in this universe like the sanskrit scriptural tradition there are no redundancies right there's no redundancy so you are here not to reproduce something that other people can do but to do something that only you uniquely can do and therefore there are no models for it as such before you no one has done what it is that you are here in this world to do no one has said what it is that you are here in this world to say no one has expressed or given what it is that you are here to express and give so obviously your parents have no idea what you're going to be and you have no idea what you're going to be but in order for you to have some kind of financial security they're going to push that you do jobs motivated by motivated by vastu and deha okay so if this voice in your head becomes more powerful than your inspiration than your desire to do what you feel is right then the christ says you're not fit to follow the spiritual path he who soever follows father and mother that's the deeper i would argue meaning here right like you shouldn't do things just because of that voice in your head because ultimately you know yeah <laughs> suresh ji says you are here in this world to be a doctor <laughs> maybe that's true for some people but not everyone and i think what your parents or guardian really wants is for you to be happy or i wouldn't say happy deeply fulfilled and they just think that that's going to come from having more stuff or having more financial security or having some kind of legacy which hopefully we've just dispelled right like obviously these things aren't going to make you happy and maybe they know that maybe they don't but if they don't know that then they're going to think that this is what happiness looks like and therefore they're going to push you to define your um work by those standards Yeah okay good Q&A we'll talk about that. I'm still doing lawyer stuff though right still arguing and debating and everything. So <laughs> So yeah they want you to be safe and 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 stuff and status they think will make you safe. Exactly. So this is this is all deluded. Um and it's not their fault. As the Christ said beautifully, forgive them father they know not what they do. Right? Deep understanding. Forgive them father they know not what they do. Okay? So obviously if you if you listen to that voice of what your parents think you should do over your own voice that's like being identified with the chitta being identified with the mind because all of that is in the mind this is just ideation these are just thoughts in the head they're not real beyond that you know it's just a voice in your head telling you how you should be and what you need to do to earn the love that you think you know will only come from doing what you think you need to do so all of that is in chitta also it might not actually be imposed on you by your parents I actually know a lot of people who don't feel the pressure from their parents. They self-impose that pressure because they compare themselves to their friends on Instagram. So you might feel like, okay, I have a concept of who I think I am, and I have a concept of who I think other people are, and I have a concept as to what success looks like at say age 35. If I for some reason in my self-concept don't meet my own concept of what success looks like at 35, and if I for some reason think that my concept of my friends do 
then I'm going to suffer. <laughs> so I might do things just to make sure that I fulfill that own delusion or that own, con- I don't want to say delusion, but it's a like concept. My own concept of what 35 should look like, how much I should have, what I should be doing, where in the world I should be, et cetera. So it's not just necessarily my parents. It's also my friends and society and all the ideas I've inherited from my conditioning. So this, I would say, is the realm of conditioning. It's subtler in the body because this conditioning is not necessarily all the time stored in the body. Some of it is. You could say there's epigenetic memories. The body keeps a score after all. And Deha and Chitta, as you'll know, in India, especially in these philosophies, aren't two different things. They're two types of the same thing. One is gross matter. One is subtle matter. So body is dense mind and mind is subtle body, right? Yeah, exactly. So actually, Prithi has just put in the in the chat, I think the main poetic phrase of, of, of this whole lecture, to thine own self be true. If I think I'm my Vastu, I'm not being true to my real nature as Chit. If I think I'm Deha, I'm not being true to my real nature. And this is so subtle. If I think I am Chitta, in other words, if I think I am who I think I am, I'm not being true to my own self because I am not that fabrication in the mind, either self-generated or handed to me by brothers, sisters, siblings, friends, fathers, mothers, guardians, okay? So this is where conditioning lives. And you know, I would I would argue all of these three are mixed up. <laughs> my sense of myself as my stuff, as my body, as, as my mind, that fluctuates and it's all just kind of getting mixed up. And you know what? I'll say it simply. The reason why I make bad financial decisions or work jobs that are a drag is because I think I am some strange combination of body, mind, stuff. In other words, I think I am a particular localized conscious entity. That's a fancy way of saying jiva or person. My whole problem is that I think I am a person. (laughs) and, and, And here's the thing. I am a person. I'm Shiva. But I think I'm this person, this particular stuff, body, mind, ego complex. That's why um, I tend to work jobs that are not always in alignment with my highest calling because I'm not any of these things. Okay. By the way, why am I not any of these things that maybe we could talk about in the Q&A and in and, and other lectures, but there, there's all these beautiful ways to prove that you're not any of these, right? Like the seer scene, Drigdusha Viveka, right? There's Panchakosha Viveka, Avastatraya Viveka. But now I'm just, I'm not, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. I'm telling you that you're not these things. You're pure consciousness. Okay. So let's continue. Ah, so nice. Ah, here we're coming from, this is the Gatta Upanishad, no? Okay, so now let's look at this again. Okay, the next level is very subtle. And I do encourage that, you know, if, you, if you've already seen it, maybe watch it again, um, just review it. Or if you haven't seen it, go and see that I am everything, I'm everyone and I own everything lecture. Because we do a kind of extensive inquiry into prana and why it's subtler than the mind. Here in this tantric understanding, the reason prana is subtler than the chitta is because prana, unlike chitta dehavastu, is transpersonal. Meaning it's just one ocean of prana and we're all kind of drawing from it. um, Different quantities at different times. We're all drawing prana, right? It's very important to understand that the reason prana is subtler than chitta is because it's vaster. The vaster something is, the subtler it is. So prana is not localized or individualized. It's not your prana. It's just the current uh, um, amount of the prana available to all beings at all times that is currently flowing in you that defines your experience of being enlivened, being energetic, or being despondent. Okay. So there are some jobs, and this is very interesting, that give you peak experiences. 
I'm thinking of maybe like, I don't know, a skydiving instructor or something like that. You might work a job because you know what? You're addicted to peak experiences because you feel more yourself when you're high energy and enlivened and less yourself when you're low energy and depleted. So you might choose to be like a rock star. Why? Because there's so much energy in that, right? You might feel such an adrenaline rush um, of being on stage, or you might feel such an adrenaline rush of jumping from the, the, the base dumping or skydiving. If you do these jobs, and if you do these jobs from a deeper place, they're great. But if you do these jobs only because they're, and, and by the way, I hope you know, I'm not going to bash doctors or skydivers or like rock stars. Okay. It's very important that if you do any of these things, if you do like, if you're an accountant, and by the way, uh, my account is like the most inspired person I've ever, ever met. My mother's grace. She really loves, she's like my mom. And the way she does accounting is as if she's like feeding her child, right? She's like, so she, she was made in, in this life to be an accountant. And the way she does it, she balances the books like a rock star. And if you see it, watching her do accounts is like watching a great jazz musician take a solo. It's inspired work. So it's not the job. Okay. I just want to, preface that in case you think I'm bashing any of these jobs as if the only job you should do is like singing the name of the Lord. No, all, all jobs are good. As long as you're doing it from the deepest part of your being, your true nature. But and I'm pointing out, I'm pointing to something here, the, the desire to do a job just because it's a thrill. Why are you addicted to this job? Because you've identified yourself as prana, the layer of energy. Um, so when you feel a sudden rush of energy, uh, you feel, okay, that's me. That's me. I am this peak person. And when and that energy goes away, as it always does, comes and it goes, waves rise and fall, sun rises, sets. When it goes away, you feel depleted. And now you can't wait for the next festival or the next jump. This is why so many people get so burnt out because they're chasing peak experiences. So notice for the sake of these peak experiences, you might forsake stuff. So you'd much rather be a poor, broke skydiving instructor than like a rich Wall Street broker. Why? Because it's more important to you to have peak experiences than it is to have stuff. Also, body is no concern now. It's okay if I die. It's okay if I lose my body because it's more important to me than have, to have peak experiences than to um, you know hold on to my body, right? I'm not too identified with the body. And also, I don't care about the mind if like somehow my brain is to get damaged or I don't even care what other people think of me because as long as I'm getting the peak experience, who cares what Amma and Appa and friends think? It's all about the rush, man. You see, it's kind of like drug addict talk because it's not that different, actually. Those who work jobs for the rush are addicted to the rush and are happy to sacrifice everything for the rush. But even this won't make you truly happy. Now, if you go to any like career counseling thing, this is typically what they point to as the ideal. A job that gives you the rush, the thrill. So they might tell you, don't do it because your parents tell you to do it. In other words, don't identify with the chitta. Don't do it for money. Don't identify with Vastu. Don't do it because you're afraid of old age, sickness, and death. Very rarely will they say this, but if they do, then they'll say, don't identify with Vastu, Deha, or Chitta. But the, you know what they will tell you in many of these career counseling places? They'll tell you to identify with what is essentially prana. Do what turns you on. Or that's another way of saying, do what gives you a sudden rush or thrill. Yeah, what makes you feel alive? Do your passion. Okay, this is all language coming from a person who's stuck and identified with the prana as if you are your energies. So what happens when your passion no longer gives you that rush? Huh? What happens when 10 years down the line, you know, I saw this very harrowing video of um, what's the um, guitar player from Metallica? I should know this. Kirk Hammett. Kirk Hammett. I saw this very harrowing video where Kirk Hammett is about to go on stage. 
and an interviewer comes up to him backstage. Now this is like 20 years into their career. And Kirk Hammett looks at the camera and in a very jaded kind of way, you know what he says? I should find this video for you. He says something like, all right, time to put on the superhero cape for the kids, right? He started to see his job as like, kind of like being a circus clown because he's getting older. He's like 60 something. It might've been great maybe to be Kirk Hammett at age 30, but that rush goes away sometimes. Not always. Mick Jagger is still strutting. And I would argue that some people are really doing it. I'm not saying Kirk Hammett isn't. I'm just saying that video is a testament to the fact that the rush comes and goes. And if you define your job by the rush, you will suffer. But not as much as if you did it for money or did it for body or did it for mind, right? So notice our standard that we set up in the beginning of the lecture is operative throughout this lecture. The closer you come to your real self, I'll put that image up again, the more joy you'll experience, but it's not quite it yet. So if I'm at Prana, that's pretty good, actually. I've come pretty far. So although I'm like kind of condescending to it now and making fun of it just because I'm in that mood, I actually think this is quite an achievement. For a person who's decided to follow their passion, right, to do the thing that turns them on or to move in the direction that sets their soul on fire, all prana language, even if it's just prana, it's still better than Vastudeha Chitta. So I really applaud and salute and respect the person who acts from the place of prana. But even they will suffer because it's not who they really are. Let's go deeper. There comes a time in spiritual life where you sense a dimension of your being that's far beyond stuff, physicality, mentality, and even energetic dimension. It's, it's a deep, deep place where you feel perfect tranquility, perfect stillness, perfect peace. In deep meditation, you might start to feel that your true nature is the void, is shunya. Okay. And shunya is what the transcendentalist traditions are all about. So if you say anatman, my true nature is no self, that's because you got caught in the void, in shunya. You've had an experience of absence and now you've come to define yourself by that absence. So I am the absence of a person. I'm the absence of all name and form. I am, you know, anatman or nirvishesha or nirguna. These are all ways to be stuck in the shunya. If you say nirguna is the highest reality only, it's because in meditation, you perhaps had that experience and that felt most real to you, most rewarding to you. So you stop there. Tantra says, good. That's very good that you came to that level, but it's sad that you stopped there. <laughs> it reminds me of how Sri Ramakrishna, he learned this transcendentalist tradition from Totapuri. You know, he learned to establish his mind in the nirguna, in the, in the nameless, formless, absolute stillness of pure void. He was able to do that. But then after that, he was the one who taught Tottapuri to go further, to go beyond the void, to go to the real nature of things, which is called chit, the highest realization. So, but notice, this is so close to that, that it can parade as that. So you know what will happen? If you get stuck here, you'll just stop doing work. You'll just become a monk. It's just a fact. If you get to this point, you realize I'm not a body, I'm not a mind, I'm not girl, I'm not boy. And what do I have to gain? And you know what will happen to you? You'll just become an escapist, recluse, transcendentalist. You might teach a little, but never for much. You'll just like sit and meditate all day. You'll go off to Himalayan caves. Basically, you won't do anything with your life. Why not? Because you don't think you're a person and don't, nor do you think there is a world even. In deep shunya, you know, you might feel not only that void about your own true nature, but you might also, as you come out of that, look around and see this world as a dream. As you open your eyes, you see that same void that I felt myself as. It's like, shunyamada, shunyamidam, shunyat, shunyamudachate. That's what a lot of people, I think, hear when they hear that mantra. That mantra is purnam. But you know what they hear, I think? They hear shunyam. 
Inside is emptiness. Outside is emptiness. From emptiness comes this emptiness. You could say the Shunya of the Buddhist is the Purnam of the Hindu. True, but Tantra says don't be so glib. That's not a very nuanced understanding. No, Purnam is a little different from Shunyam. Shunyam is an emptiness of things. It's an absence of things. Purnam is a fullness of things. Purnam includes, Shunyam dissolves. Do you see? It's, it's, I think, under-nuanced and unsophisticated, I think, to just say the Purnam of the Hindu is the Shunyam of... No, 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 no. Hindus are, are just as likely to commit Shunyam fallacy because what they're calling Purnam is an experience actually of Shunyam. <laughs> this is the critique that the tantric traditions have of monistic Vedanta. Not Shankara and Gaudapada. I think the great tantric masters have a soft spot for them because they think that, especially Gaudapada, they think that they came closer to having an imminent transcendence experience as opposed to just an exclusively transcendence. But they're definitely critical of Sankhya. They're definitely critical of Patanjali. They're super critical of classical Buddhism, but they don't deny that this is a high attainment. It's just not the final absolute attainment, okay? So let's look at that diagram again. We're coming towards the end of the lecture here. Yeah, no one will escape this. Actually, no one person will. The person who identifies as the transcendent imminent chit, okay? which hopefully will be all of us in just a few moments. So Shunya, if I think I am Shunya, that's a great attainment. And by the way, lest I you know, sound nihilistic or anything, this is actually a tremendously wonderful state. Uh, to her who has had the experience, no explanation is necessary. To her who has not, none is possible. If you haven't had the experience of void, it will sound scary and life negating to you. But if in meditation, you should, by the grace of God, experience yourself as emptiness, it will be a feeling of tremendous freedom, tremendous stillness, tremendous peace. And when you open your eyes, although the world feels like an illusion, there will still be a sense of fullness within you. I mean, not to be too unfair, you do feel peace. You, you know, the peace might be as simple as not fearing the end of the body and mind. The peace might be as simple as not defining yourself by your thoughts. Imagine the freedom and joy you would feel if you didn't believe what your thoughts told you. Right? Can you imagine if your mind said, you're such a loser, and you were like, ah, cute. <laughs> as if, imagine if each of your thoughts was just like the smell of garbage or roses, if it meant that little to you. Oh, I smell roses, good. It doesn't say anything. I don't become a good person because I smelled roses, right? I don't become a bad person because I smelled garbage. Similarly, my thoughts, which are nothing but sensations, don't make me a good, it doesn't say anything about me. So I don't care. Let my thoughts come. Let them, let the stream of thoughts, let the mind be as busy as it wants to be. Let the world be as noisy as it wants to be. I am always established in my own transcendental purity, unbesmirched, inviolable, Ever still, Chidananda Rupaha, Shivoham, Shivoham, Chidananda Rupaha, Shivoham, Shivoham, Aham Nirvikalpo, Nirakara Rupo, Vibhutvachcha Sarvatra Sarvendriyani. Nacha Sangatam. Okay, so you get the point, right? If, if I get to this state, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's so wonderful that Shankara sings. Right? He sings the joy of it. So don't think this is a, is a bad thing. It's really good. Just there's something better. Okay? Because if you get trapped in Shunya, and by the way, we'll have a little quiz maybe, okay? Just so you can understand um, and have a more interactive experience. What will happen if you're in Vastu? What will happen if you're in Deha? What will happen if you're in Chitta? Well, so what will happen if you're in Shunya? You'll maybe become a transcendentalist um, and you might disengage with life, with other people, with life. This is what Swamiji criticized. Swami Vekananda rallied the monastic force of India and brought them back into the world. You know, he said, he who goes off to the mountains to die, he who runs away to the Himalayas has missed the point. And he who plunges head first into the vanities of the world has also missed the point. So notice he's saying, it's not that you have to be worldly, but if, if you become 
otherworldly <laughs> if you run away from the world sorry friend you've missed the point because you got stuck in shunya so what swamiji is what the buddha really did by the way notice when the buddha realized that all is void dukkham dukkham sarvam dukkham he didn't fuck off to the himalayas right <laughs> he engaged with others he it's not just maitri it's not just friendliness it's karuna compassion he like felt this deep oneness with all life and he continued to engage with and interface with life he worked harder than ever he he was a great dynamic soul so you know if your realization makes you lazy and inactive i'm sorry but it's not realization it's a high state but it's not yet realization so although this is going to be better than everything that has preceded it it's not the best so friends now we come to it the best the closing of this lecture the direct advice from shri abhinava gupta i would argue in the tantra loka or or i'm not necessarily in the tantra loka it's elsewhere too but this is the advice that they seem to be giving us you are pure consciousness that is aware of the absence in a void state like deep meditation just as readily as it is aware of changes in energy level just as readily as it is aware of changes in the mind just as readily as it is aware of let's say changes on the level of the body just as readily as it is aware of stuff and things and and possessions okay so there's one witnessing subject that is the witness of the void that is the witness of the um prana that is the witness of the mind that is the witness of the body that is the witness of the stuff and that one is wholly imminent in all of it so it's not just in deep meditation it's also all the time right now so right now this is the invitation where is your selfhood is it in the things is it in the in 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 the in the body is it in the mind is it in the prana or do you feel like closing this lecture going off and meditating because if you do that's good i praise you but it's only because you think that what's there in meditation is not here now right you fetishize meditation because you think there's something in meditation that isn't here now <laughs> fools we are <laughs> as if i'm only conscious in meditation what nonsense i'm conscious right now i'm never not conscious <laughs> so what is this this can be a meditation right now if i move my sense of self into what i really am consciousness and interestingly consciousness is transpersonal so i'm not this particular localized consciousness called nish rather i'm non localized transpersonal consciousness that calls itself by all these different names that experiences itself through all these different pairs of eyes i am everyone and i am and own everything that was the point of that lecture so i won't go into it i want to talk now the second part of the lecture about um very interestingly what the nature of this chit is and and let me just go back to this and give you a different image now okay no not that not that not that there we go here we go here we go okay this image i have some stuff left over from the vedanta life academy um just like images that we made for that class so therefore i think it's nice to recycle them sorry <laughs> for those of you who came to that class earlier this week this is familiar to you um but i hope this is a new interpretation of the material so now like i promised in the beginning of lecture abhinava gupta and utpala deva and all the kashmir shaiva masters they have a little more to say about consciousness than just satchit ananda Though they do end up saying that, they also say a few more things. So let's let's look at that and let's see how they can help us in choosing a career. So awareness is, at the very least, two 
aspects, okay? It's chit shakti, which is otherwise called prakasha, the illuminating power of awareness whereby it can know its objects. So because awareness has chit shakti, the power of awareness, which sounds redundant to say, but it's important, because it has chit shakti, it has the power to maybe be aware of the void or be aware of prana or be aware of mind or body or stuff. This is the illuminating power of awareness. And this is even more important Secondly, it has this vimarsha power, this self-reflexive ability. It's able not only to know other things, but it's self-effulgent in that it knows itself also all the time. So there's no such thing as an awareness that is not self-aware. And this is key, friends. Look closely at the link between ananda shakti and vimarsha. You know, Advaita Vedanta will tell you that consciousness is bliss, but sometimes it, does, it doesn't really provide the explanation for why. What makes consciousness bliss? And Kashmir Shaivism will, will say, well, it's because of Vimarsha, actually. Because Vimarsha, because consciousness is aware of itself, therefore, it experiences ananda, a great meaning, profundity, and joy. And it's a deep joy. It's not a superficial joy of like happiness in the mind or a high prana level. It's there even when the mind might be sorrowful. It's there even when prana might be low. It's there even when the body might be sick. And it's certainly there in poverty or wealth. It doesn't matter what's happening on any of the preceding layers. Awareness, by its own light, is self-effulgent and innately blissful. Why? Because to savor itself is its greatest joy. Therefore, in the Upanishads, Chandogya, I think it says, Yo vai bhuma tatsukam, right? Like the, the joy is only in the vast. Nalpe, nalpam sukamasti. Like the, small things, limited things don't bring you joy. The vast brings you joy. Okay, so very important understanding. The vaster something is, the more joy will arise from it. Because consciousness is the vastest possible thing. Yeah, nalpe sukamasti, bhuvhaiva. Yeah, that's it, sukam. Yovai bhuma tatsukam. That's an important verse. So because awareness is transpersonal and because it's both transcendent and imminent, so it's not only uh, like exclusively transcendent, it's also imminent. Because awareness is so inclusive, it's therefore the greatest joy. And it's a joy unto itself, okay? So it's both truth and it's beauty. So if you found a way to rest in your true nature, and here's the teaching, you will experience a great bliss in simply being. Now that bliss is what you've been seeking in all of your actions and activities in the world, okay? But how does that differ from the transcendentalist who realizes that, okay, this is it. I'm just going to stay in meditation and rest in this. How does that differ? Here's how. Kashmir Shaivism, um, or I would say Paramadvaya philosophy, goes one step further by saying that there's no such thing as an experience of consciousness without concurrently the experience of Icha Shakti, which means the innate precognitive urge to express your own fullness. So you innately, precognitively desire to share something of your own fullness with others. That's the law of fullness. Anything that's full spills over. You try it. You fill a cup to the brim and you see, is it content to just stay full? No, it spills over. Okay, so if you enter into true consciousness, not just the void state, not just the consciousness of absence, but true consciousness, meaning consciousness of consciousness, which can happen not only in meditation, it most likely happens in meditation. It can happen anywhere else you will also feel this great inspiration, this great icha shakti, this great urge to express yourself for no other reason than because that's what fullness does. The flower does not bloom and give fragrance for stuff, for pension plans, for praise from parents 
or even for a peak experience. Okay, the reason a flower gives fragrance because it's because it's its nature to do so. Similarly, it's your nature to be an expressive, poetic being. So icha shakti will naturally come without any effort on your part because inspiration is innate to your being. So all you have to do is rest in what you are. Yeah, and Priti is giving all these beautiful um, references for us. You know, here's the Birhat Aranyak Upanishad. And it's, it's never the object. It's awareness in which the object vibrates that gives meaning. So if you're able to like feel into that, you will have this sudden upsurge of Icha Shakti. Okay. And therein lies the great joy, the great joy and the great inspiration. So this will move you into action. So unlike the person trapped in Shunya, this person who is in Shunya might not feel the inspiration to do anything. So they might become like a world renouncer in the sense that they don't engage or interface with others. But a person who goes deep into Chit will feel Icha Shakti and therefore feel this urge to like express outward and embrace, to re-include, to see everything dancing in the splendor of the divine, right? Now with Icha Shakti, comes jnana. With great power comes great responsibility. Okay, with great willing comes great knowing. With Icha Shakti, there comes also inspiration in a concrete form. In other words, you'll just know what to do and how to do it. You'll just know that I have to write a book and that this is the way it must be. I'm reminded of um, that wonderful uh, musician, Bruce Springsteen. So I was hearing um, that he was really down on his luck and really broke and you know, he was, he was making this record. I think it's called Born in the USA, right? And that was like the record that really made him, I think. So he was making this record and he tried a couple of times before and, and had no commercial success. It was really at the very dredges now. He was like kind of about to burn out and about to finish with his music career or something. But he had this innate inspiration and this innate urge to express Born in the USA the way that it's written and, and expressed. And although many people told him this is not what you should do, the market forces tell us that we should do it this way. His manager, his agent were all in, like kind of pushing him to do something that was contrary to what he innately felt he needed to do. He just knew, somehow he knew this is the way the music should sound. And he didn't care if it flopped or not. This is because this was inspired work. Something in him demanded expression, Icha Shakti, and something in him provided the know-how, the structure for that inspiration to be channeled. So he just knew how the album should sound. Similarly, you just know how your book should look. You just know what your business should be like. It, it, it's, it's, it's innate. And this gives you kind of like bravado. It gives you like this charisma of doing things your way. It gives you a kind of risk appetite that only great CEOs and leaders seem to have. Right, a great CEO, she doesn't care. She'll just do what she knows is right to do, even though it might not seem right at the time. This is the story of all great success, friends. And what happened? He did it. Kriya Shakti. So finally, because of inspiration, wedded to some kind of innate knowing, doing arises. So you have to want to do it. Then you have to know how to do it. And then finally, you're able to do it. So when you do it, in other words, make Born in the USA, put it out. Notice what happens. The whole world rejoiced. It was as if the world was waiting for something only Bruce Springsteen could give, born in the USA, right? And once he gave it, look what the world, quote unquote, gave back. Not that he cared for it, but he got it anyway, which is great abundance. And these things also shall be added unto ye, the Bible says. Okay, great things will come into your life. All the abundance you could ever have wanted because the same force that, that feeds the sparrow the same force that clothes the, the, the lavender lily, that same force will clothe you, feed you, and make you abundant beyond your wildest dreams, right? If you really want to make money in this life, have no regard for money. If you really want 
a legacy, forget about it. If you really want to be respected and make your parents proud, never let those things motivate you. If you really want to feel joy in a deeper way than just a sudden rush, never do anything for the sake of the rush. If you really want to experience peace and stillness, then don't become an escapist and run away into the Himalayan caves. If you really want to live, friends, not just practically, but truly, if you really want to live, you must live from this place, from the place of who you really are. And the more you rest in that, the more you recognize that, the more you believe yourself and feel yourself to be that, the more inspired will your work be and the more abundance will flow into your life. This is the teaching. This is Shiva. Okay. So I promise you I'll do one last thing before we go. Um, and this thing is a bit provocative. So if you've been inspired thus far, good. It's wonderful because I believe this with all of my heart that if you just follow your inspiration, not in a superficial sense, like in those other layers, but innate to your pure consciousness, then um, you'll just know what to do and how to do it, when to do it, etc. I was actually even hearing um, Post Malone. You know, there's like an independent artist TikTok that I follow. And I saw a little clip of Post Malone talking about his White Iverson album. And he was talking about how he was broke. And he just knew that this was how the art should look and what the music should sound like. And his, his record label was telling him, wait, wait, don't put it out. Don't put it out. Wait. And he said, I have no time to wait. I'm broke. It's coming out now. And he did it. So it's not just about knowing what to do. It's also about knowing when to do it. Right. And a lot of you have, have messaged me sometimes after the lecture and been like, that was really uh, synchronistic. Like, that's what I needed to hear today. Or that's that was perfect. That was the right timing. But other times that doesn't happen. Why? Because if I give a lecture thinking about what I should say and what needs to be said from my point of view as Nish, then I'm always going to be wrong. But if I spend some time meditating before the lecture and just allow what needs to be said to be said, then interestingly, it just happens to be timely. It just happens to be the right message at the right time interestingly, right? And that will always be true um, no matter what uh, you do, whether it's cobbling shoes or acting or, you know, giving lectures or writing books or putting out music, it will always be the right time at the, the right thing at the right time at the right place if you allow um, consciousness to do it for you, okay? So this is true. Abundance will flow into your life as a fact because of the forces of nature. I like how Miriam Williams says, Williamson says, like the fetus never worries about whether or not it's going to grow an arm. Nature just decides that it will, right? But wait, sometimes it doesn't, right? So now I'm going to come to a little more provocative part of the lecture. Is every bird going to be protected by the Lord? Don't many of them die? Okay, are you ready to hear the deeper stuff, the more provocative stuff, the stuff that you might only really hear in Kashmir Shaivism? It's a theology that is challenging, confrontational, a bit eerie, but also thrilling. And it goes like this. God is not a being who is in control of every single little thing, like some big brother or tyrant figure. It's not like God is sitting there waiting for you to do what you came into this world to do and then rewards you for it. No, no, it's not like that. You know what Kashmir Shaivism argues? God is you, pure consciousness. And because you have Ipcha Shakti innately, you know what you did? You manifested as all of this, but all of this is a reflection within you. It's not an actual change in you. So this is, you just note this. It would be, it'd be quite horrific 
if this was actually Parinama Vada, right? If God really became you or really became all of these things, then it would be really horrific what I'm about to say. No, God doesn't actually become all of this. God just appears to be all of this. Like appearance is pratibimba, reflection, we say, uh, abhasa. It's not Parinama Vada, okay? Kashmir Shaivism doesn't say actual real transformation. Rather, it says apparent transformation, but still real in the sense that everything is wholly saturated with transcendence. So it's still something, but not enough of a something to be a real change in that absolute, okay? Knowing this, it's like a movie playing on a screen. Now, in order to have an entertaining movie, you have to be surprised. In other words, anything theoretically should be able to happen at any time. Otherwise, it's not a fun movie. You know, if you knew that all the characters in the movie would just do well and just automatically get abundance, it, it would suck. And not, not always. Sometimes it doesn't suck. Sometimes the movie is really great. Um, but I think that predictability is an affront on the freedom of God. That's what Kashmir Shaivism seems to argue. For God to be Svatantriya, it means that God herself is not confined to being any particular way. She can be any way. So that means I can't superimpose this law onto her. I can't say, hey, if you follow your passion, you'll automatically be abundant. That seems to be the case. Anecdotally, that seems to be the case. And that seems to be true in most people's lives. And that seems to be a law. But that's just my mind making up laws. I can't say about God that this is how it always is because birds do die in nature. Things do get killed. Fetuses don't grow arms and come out blind, right? Like shit happens <laughs> even to those who seem to be following their passion. So here's, I think, a more nuanced understanding. If you live from this deepest place of your true essence nature, you have chit shakti, you have ananda shakti, you have icha, jnana, and kriya. Now, you know what Kashmir Shaivan is going to say? It's not karma. You know, they're going to say something. It is karma. Karma is the mechanism. But they're going to say it's the leela. It's the play of Ma, who is so infinite that necessarily her expression will also be equally infinite, which means anything goes. To say no to any part of herself is to reject some part of herself, which is an act of self-hatred that love is incapable of doing. So since God is love, it is impossible for God to deny herself any expression of herself, which means that has to include the expression of the failed inspired person, the person who dies doing what they love, the person who does end up under the, the 101. Do you see how I want to give a more nuanced career talk today? Because it could go to shit, right? It could all go wrong. You could die. And that's the joy of it. Because if you knew, if you just knew in your heart that you wouldn't die, that would first of all be really great and really like empowering, but it would also be boring. If you, if you knew, in other words, if you knew for a fact that if I follow my passion, I will be protected, that takes an element of danger and surprise out of your life, which Ma Kali delights in. Part of what makes all of this so wonderful is that you, the person, could die and often do, right? Doing things that are in dharma and in alignment. And that's okay. That's wonderful. So you know what here the invitation is? To a greater level of ecstasy. An ecstasy that comes not from just trust or security, but an ecstasy that comes from such a deep knowing of your true nature as beyond all change that it allows for a crazy amount of like change. Okay, I'm just going to stop here because otherwise I could go on for the next like 30 minutes and I'm already 30 minutes over time. So let's just, what? how long are we? Is this like an hour 30 already? When do we start? How, how? It's an hour 30. Oh my God. I'm trying, it needs to be, this, these lectures need to be an hour. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So <laughs> anything can happen. Anything could happen. But notice, okay, let's just close with this idea. Svatantriya Shakti. 
it's one of the most powerful. Um, yeah, I think that's good. One thirty ninety minutes seems to be the kind of the time that it needs that I need to take to say what I need to say, right? I feel like that's I, I need to say this because if I don't, I haven't done what I know in my heart that I need to do. Um, whatever it means, right? Some people are telling me like on YouTube, no one's gonna watch and you know an hour. <laughs> and I, 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 well, who's who's problems? I, I, I so I have to, I have to. And this is the last thing I have to say because here in this model, you'll see that only five powers are listed: chit shakti, ananda shakti, icha, jnana, kriya shakti. Okay, only five powers are listed. Right? Good. You guys, you're all enablers. Only five powers are listed, attributed to this one hridayam, this one pure consciousness. However, there's a sixth power. Just like there is a secret sixth head of Lord Shiva, Adhomukha, right? The secret sixth head of Lord Shiva. There's also a secret sixth power. And this power is so powerful that it's very reservingly offered. It's, it's the highest teaching. Why is it the highest teaching? Because it requires so much actualization, so much empowered self-confidence. You have to really know that you're Hridayam to really hear what I'm about to say now and not be like absolutely spooked by it. Because what I'm suggesting is that God herself doesn't know what's going to happen. Because she is infinite, her expression is going to be infinite. Because she is all love, she cannot reject any part of herself. So she's free to fuck up. In other words, she's free to become a person who fucks up. In other words, she's so free that she's free enough to be bound. And that's how we got here. We're bound because our bondage is an expression of her freedom. She's free enough to become me and become deluded. She doesn't know what I'm going to do. She as me has no idea what's going to happen. And she also doesn't know what's going to come through me yet. It's not like she's waiting for me to do what she knows that I'm here to do. She doesn't even know what I'm here to do. Because what I do will actively help in her experiencing a new dimension of her. So my service is not service to people and therefore winning me merit from God. My service is service to mom. Because in me doing what I came to do, I give her a new way to experience herself. And you know what that might mean? She might want to experience being a strung out, broke, dying musician under the 101. That might be her expression. Look at her. Look at her. Do you see her? Does she look like she's always going to give you nice things? Look at her. As it says in that beautiful Apara Vidya. Let me, let me, let me read it to you again. It's an eerie uh, but beautiful um, mantra. I'm going to put it in the chat. Okay, this is, I think, the third Third mantra, yes, of Sri Tantra Loka. Look at this. I'm going to put it in the chat. Abhinava Gupta's own words about the goddess Apara, who is, who is like this, Kali, Apara. Naomi Devim Shari Rastam Nityato Bhairava Kritehe. I praise the goddess, Kali, a fierce form of the goddess. I, I praise the goddess who abides in the dancing Shiva, meaning change. Anything could happen and it's all part of the dance. So I praise that goddess who is change. Notice Makali is always moving. She's never static. It's all change, right? And change means anything can happen. She's not confined by cause and effect. She's not standing. She's walking. She's dancing. Now it goes. Pravrin uh, Megha means clouds. Megha Ghanna, thick with clouds. Vyoma means sky. Um, so Pravrin Megha Ghanna, Vyoma Vidyuleka. Vilasinim. The word Vilasini means playful. So I praise that goddess who abides in the body of the dancer whose form is Bhairava, who is beautiful and playful like a streak of lightning against the cloudy sky of the rainy season. Just imagine that, right? Dark, dark clouds. It could flood your whole village and sweep, literally sweep away your whole life. Everything you've ever held dear in your life could just like that by the rains be swept away. 
Now imagine that flash of lightning, uh, red, shining darkly against the cloud. How horrifying. And you know what Abhinava says? He looks at that tremendous horror of what could be the demise of an entire civilization. And he says, oh, Devi, you are as beautiful and playful as that. Oh, Devi, you who are the dancing Shiva, your play is my death. And I love it because I am you. So your play is my play, right? Sri Ramakrishna would say that to people. So I want to give you a more nuanced and less like, you know, uh, because Kashmir Shaivism will say, you have to be open to that too. You have to be open to absolute abject horror because that's part of her game. And if you, by the way, take this point of view of being pure awareness, the changeless, inviolable, unbesmirched presence, then the clouds aren't so scary. Because even if it does mean the absolute demise of your peoples, you know you aren't the body that can die. You know you aren't the mind that is burdened by sorrow. And then it becomes art. So you didn't come here to just watch comedies, friends. You didn't come here to watch Pursuit of Happiness over and over and over again, right? If your life was a movie, it can't just be Pursuit of Happiness over and over and over again where you, Will Smith, wins in the end all the time. It can't be that. It has to sometimes be, I don't know, name me some tragedy. It has to be sometimes that because that's the joy of theater. You never know what you're going to see. And there isn't always a happy ending. That's part of art. So if this is really the play of the Divine Mother, have to be open to that play too. This is what real freedom looks like. So having said that, rather provocative thing, maybe in the Q&A, we can challenge it a little bit. Um, I hope that today, this is a, a nuanced understanding of what it is to be inspired, not just a bliss seeker, right? Not just chasing peak experiences, not transcendentally lost in the Himalayan caves, and nor acting from body, mind, or stuff, right? So let's close there. You are pure awareness. All this is your play. And to simply abide, in, I should say, the more you meditate, the more you pray, the more you do japa, the more you selflessly serve, all of these spiritual practices, the more you do that, the more cognizant you are of your true nature as awareness. And the more you receive transmission. In Tantra, this is very important. You have to go to awakeness and receive from awakeness your own awakeness. And then you do practices to stabilize that. So you take diksha, you take your mantras, you go and hear the teaching over and over from many mouths, like a bee collecting fragrance from many flowers and let their awakeness awaken you to your own awakeness. Then you practice to stabilize that. And the more sure you are, the more stable you are of your true nature, the more blissful you will be, even when your life is an absolute ruin. Because that's part of the fun. <laughs> Om. Naomi Devim Sharirastam Rityato Bhairavakritehe Pravarin Meghaghanna Vyoma Vidnyuleka Vilasinim. Oh, my praise, that Bhairavi, that Apara who abides in the form of the dancing Shiva, whose very nature is change. I praise that goddess who is beautiful and playful and a coquette like a streak of lightning against the cloudy sky of the rainy season. Naomi chit pratibham devim param bhairava yoginim matar mana prameyam sha shulam bhuja kritaspadam Salutations to that intuitive understanding of awareness, that goddess supreme who is inseparable from her consort Bhairava, who has taken as her residence this lotus heart mounted upon a trident whose spokes are the trinity of knowing knower and known. Salutations to that goddess who alone is. May all this be an offering to her. Om Shanti 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 
हरि ओम तत्सत्मकृष्णारपनम अस्तु Pretty okay, hold on.